But yeah, let's welcome Kevin Harlan uh, no. to the downtown crew. Don't clap again. Please okay. Don't. Please don't. But Thank welcome you. him with silence. Thank you, Gabe. And way to go on the tax deduction. That's, yeah. that's awesome. Uh, pulled that one off. There's a legend in my family, um, and I, I just feel like compelled to tell it as we congratulate Gabe and Allie on the arrival of Ava. I am a December 31st baby, so I celebrated my birthday uh, this week, and uh, this, the legend is, you just have to know this, my dad was the, um, he worked for 30 years for Conoco, so a oil company in a small town in Oklahoma, um, and he was the manager of the tax department. So, <laughs> so you see where this is going. Uh, uh, the, the, the legend is that in, in Ponca City, if you're familiar with Oklahoma, which is where I grew up in Ponca City, it's, if you're from Oklahoma, it's not a small town. It's like one of the bigger ones. So, um, and they, they lavish gifts on the first baby of the year. I mean, it's, you know, big picture, the Ponca City News, and you have all these gifts that come your way on the first, for the first baby of the year. And the legend is, I don't know if it's true or not, you know, my dad, he, he, it's grown as the years. I've gotten closer to midnight when I was born as the years go by. Um, and uh, the legend is that the doctor came in uh, to the waiting room, uh, Dads were not allowed in the delivery room at the time, age, uh, and asked my dad if he would want me to be born first baby of the year or born on the 31st. And that my dad did the calculation quickly and realized <laughs> the, the, the tax deduction was much better than all the gifts. So I, that's, I could have had a January 1st birthday, but um, congratulations. I heard on the news, did you, I think there was a Kansas City baby twins that were delivered, one on the 31st and one on the 1st. So uh, it's kind of cool. My small town, my next, or the neighbor across the street, she was the first baby of the year. And we shared a hospital room together. And, you know, that only happens in a small town where you're, you actually know the person who's, uh, they live in your neighborhood. So anyway, it's, it's great to be here this morning. And uh, yeah, we wanted for sure for Gabe not to have this hanging over his head. I'm glad you're here. So uh, maybe I can walk across the street and see Ava. Maybe, how about we all go over and see Ava after? <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Um, well, as Gabe mentioned, we're going to be looking at Hebrews uh, chapter one. If you have Bible and want to follow along, I encourage that. Um, Hebrews is maybe one of those books that you want to turn to the table of contents and uh, get there that way. It's hard to flip through and find it. It's kind of toward the middle back of the New Testament. Um, and if you have an electronics device, it's easy to find, right? Well, as we start this morning, I want to introduce you to Ben and Sarah. Okay, they're going to be important to our journey today. Sorry, this is starting to slip here. Um, they're going to be important to our journey today as we talk. Um, when Ben and Sarah first heard about Jesus, they were skeptical. And... Uh, I'm guessing that um, some of you that would describe as well. I mean, why wouldn't you be skeptical, right? There's this person that's the son of God. um, And that would be the best way to describe Ben and Sarah, that they were skeptical at the beginning at best. But Ben and Sarah had this friend who believed in Jesus and talked about Jesus, um, never pushy, um, always loving, caring, um, he, he seemed to really genuinely be interested in them. And there just seemed that there was something different about him. And it made them curious. What is this about Jesus? And eventually these friends, or this friend, invited them to come to church. 
And there they met this group of people um, that was sort of different. Um, but they recognized that there was uh, a love for God, a love for others that was very attractive to them. They couldn't really even explain what, what it was that was wooing them in. Uh, and it began to sink in that they weren't just hearing about some superstition or rumors of a resurrection. They saw this Jesus alive in the people that they were meeting. And they believed. But as it happens for all of us, uh, time passed. Uh, Difficulty came. Uh, They never expected life to be all rosy. um, But when it hit, they began to question. They didn't know if they were just growing restless or if they were becoming disillusioned or just frankly, just maybe even bored with Jesus. Um, They really didn't even begin to, weren't able to articulate why they believed. Uh, It just wasn't there anymore. They'd given up um, quite a bit to follow Jesus. Their life had changed changed radically. Uh, Sarah was mocked for believing in Jesus. Uh, Ben had been passed over for promotions and believed that maybe part of that was the fact that he professed to be a Christian. And they'd heard more difficult stories about Christians who were being persecuted, uh, Christians who were imprisoned, uh, some that had been killed. They wondered at times if it was really worth it. Does is that really where we're going to end up? And should we keep heading down this path? There were others in the congregation as time passed that were friends of theirs that had already quit. Um, Not just quit the church, they stopped following Jesus. And Ben and Sarah had these conversations and wondered if, you know, should we give it up? Is it really worth it? And I don't know about you, but I can relate to this to Ben and Sarah. Uh, most of us probably can. I mean, maybe for you guys, kids, it, maybe there isn't a moment where you doubted. But let me just say, these are normal parts of faith. Why do I believe this? Should I keep on believing this? There's nothing wrong with these questions. Doubt is just normal. But if you don't have handles to those questions, if you haven't taken time to process and try to think through it, Um, boredom can set in. You can begin to drift. Temptations come. There's disillusionment. Suffering hits. And you begin to question and wonder, And is this really all worth it? And my hunch is that even in a crowd this size, that there's some of you sitting here this morning maybe going through something in your life or having something thrown at you that you're questioning that. Is this really worth it? You believe, but you can feel the drift. Or maybe you haven't believed. Maybe you're just considering Jesus as a possibility. You're not quite ready to take the next step. Maybe you're not sure how serious you are about this faith. But this one thing is true, that no matter where we find ourselves this morning, this question needs to be answered by all of us. Is Jesus really worth it? You see, we all have to answer this. And that answer is not just sort of a one-and-done sort of thing. Um, For example, I've given my life to this. 
I've raised my kids to believe this. Um, I have a long list of things that I don't do or want to do that I don't do because of this. I'm following someone I can't see, obeying a book that's ancient, devoted to an institution, a church that is messy. So you bet, I want to know. And I think all of us have to answer, is Jesus really worth it? Ben and Sarah were just this close. Their their faith was hanging by a thread. You see, they'd grown up Jewish. So if there was something they were going to turn back to, uh, Ben and Sarah likely would have turned back to their Jewish roots. They also lived a long time ago, back in the 60s. And I'm not talking about the 1960s. These are the 60s A.D. They weren't alive at the same time as Jesus, but it's likely that they knew people who had heard about or met Jesus and had heard stories firsthand of his resurrection and crucifixion. You see, Christianity didn't start, before we dive into this book that had you open, Christianity didn't start with a bunch of people who just believed in Jesus. They actually saw him knew him, saw the events happen that we read about today. And the early church all believed that Jesus would come back. Remember Jesus said, I'm coming soon. So here in the 60s, it's now three decades later, and we're just used to Jesus not coming back. But just imagine for them, they're thinking, when is he going to come back? And and decade after decade after decade pass. And now they're wondering, is this really true? Is Jesus really worth it? Well, one Sunday morning, Ben and Sarah showed up at church. They'd missed the previous week, maybe just a little reluctant to come, but they still decided to head out. And they sat down in this small congregation, people they knew like family, after the years had passed by, and the pastor gets up. We don't even know who this pastor was. But he begins his sermon like this. Hebrews 11, verse 1. He says, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. These first four verses in the original language, in Greek, is one sentence. The first sentence of maybe what is the most eloquent, thoughtful sermon ever preached. It's so important that this sermon, God decided that this sermon ought to be in his book written down for us. We know this sermon as the book of Hebrews in the New Testament. Sometimes it's referred to as a letter, but it's likely started with a sermon preached to a small congregation of mostly Jewish Christians in or near the city of Rome. A sermon that, as Gabe mentioned, we're going to take the next 24 Sundays, the next six months to talk about. Now, that's and you come for a sermon about a sermon, right? It's like for 24 months. How can we really spend, or not 24 months. We could take 24 months for it, but 24 weeks. We don't know who wrote it. There have been a lot of guesses, none of, the, none of them even worth bringing up. 
And we don't know much about the, these first century hearers. But we do know why. This sermon makes it very clear why this is spoken and written. Some were drifting from the faith. It was only getting harder. Some were growing disillusioned, disappointed, overwhelmed by temptation, or yes, just plain bored with following Jesus. So the preacher reminds them of this one thing, one thing that is as true for us as it was for them, and that is this, that you can't do better than Jesus. You can't do better than Jesus. You can try. At Ben and Sarah, you can return to your old Jewish customs. You can backslide. You can give up. You can drift. Every one of us will look somewhere for satisfaction, for significance, for security. But you can't do better than Jesus. And that is the message of this book of Hebrews. It's the answer to my question. It's the answer to your question that, yes, Jesus is worth it. And the author will spend 13 chapters telling us why and how. The the word for greater or better or more is used 25 times in Hebrews referring to Jesus. He's the better priest, the better hope, the better covenant, the better promise, the better sacrifice, the better life. He's better than angels. We'll actually talk about that next week. He's better than Moses. He's better than anything you can fill in the blank with. Jesus is better. We see this already in these opening words. There's four key things that we want to pull out this morning. That Jesus is the story. Jesus is the author of the story. Jesus is the director of the story. And Jesus is the hero of the story. Jesus is the story. He's the author, he's the director, and he's the hero. First, let's look at this. Jesus is the story. Everything God is saying and doing is about Jesus. The Bible isn't merely about him, though. He is the message. Look at verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son. God has spoken a lot of times and a lot of ways through the prophets. As Gabe mentioned, this last year we looked through the entire um, Bible from Genesis to Revelation as we read it together and and talked about it on Sunday morning together. Uh, The author of Hebrews loves the Old Testament. There's a lot of great stuff in the Old Testament. In, in fact, reading Hebrews and kind of journeying through Hebrews together this year is sort of like reading the cliff notes of the Old Testament. It beautifully weaves together the old and the new. But the Old Testament is hard, isn't it? Now he says, though, that God has spoken to us through his Son. Not just messengers about God, God has come. The Bible tells only one story that God comes to rescue, that Jesus is the fulfillment of it all. <laughs> That's why, if you've been around Christ community for some time, uh, sorry, I'm having trouble with this. There we go, maybe that's better. I have the smallest ears. I just want you to know that. And for the rest of the sermon, all you're going to be looking at is my ears now, is thinking. He has very small ears. Um, Jesus is the finish to the whole story. He is the story. And if you've been around Christ's community for long, you know that uh, th- this is the reason that many of the sermons sa- sound the same. And spoiler alert, by the way, coming up for you, uh, Jesus is the finish to everything. 
This is the story. This is what we read. When we preached about Abraham, it was really about Jesus. When we preached about Rahab and Moses and uh, Nehemiah, it was about Jesus. You see, God spoke in whispers through the prophets. Now he speaks through his son. That's why in John 1, uh, we read it this week in our reading plan. And let me just encourage you and add to it, Gabe, if you, we'd love to have you join us up and sign up and uh, read along with us this year. I think it will add so much to the richness of what we'll do together on Sunday mornings. Uh, you can go to openherebible.com, by the way. That's an easy way to get there. Sign up and we'll get all those emails to you. This week we, we read John chapter 1, that Jesus is not just, um, the story's not just about him. He is the Word. Jesus is the Word, the very message of God in bodily form. So let me just say, if you're considering something, if you're considering Christianity this morning, maybe here wondering, is this for me? And wondering what's different about Christianity from other religions or philosophies. I mean, this is it. It's Jesus. Christianity is not just a, a set of rituals and rules and things to follow. It's a person. Uh, things we do, it's not about things that we do to make our lives acceptable, to give our lives values. It's about a person who comes to rescue his people. Now, of course, we don't know for sure who these people were in this ancient church, but I can only imagine that it was filled with people like I described to you, uh, like Ben and Sarah. I can't help but wonder if part of their struggle was God's silence. Just this waiting. He's coming soon. Don't we know that pain of silence? We know God has spoken. The story always tells us that it spoke, he's spoken, but yet we wait, and it seems as if there's times that the silence is deafening. Jesus is the story, but he's not just the story, he is also the author of the story. Not a mere man that God used to accomplish his plan, not just a good leader or a nice teacher or a misunderstood revolutionary. He is the author of the story. We'll see this when we get to Hebrews 12, actually. There's a verse that you may have stuck in your memory that Jesus is the author and the perfecter of our faith. But look here at verse 2. It says, Whom he, speaking of Jesus, appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. Jesus is the heir of all things. And yes, if you look deeply into the Greek meaning of this phrase, all things, it means all things everything. Jesus is the heir of everything. He created everything. There's not a single thing in your life or in my life that he did not bring about. Which, if he's the author of everything, this makes total sense. It's his story. For it was through him that God the Father created the world. Do you see that? Jesus existed before the world began And in ways that we cannot possibly understand, our God, the Trinity, the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, decided to create. And he made it happen. happen. He invented DNA and laughter. He made babies. He created little Ava. The stars were his idea. So was sex and food and love. Silly things like ostriches and emus and mountains and beaches and music. He's the one writing the story. He's the author of the story. 
Now imagine what these words, this is hard for us, I think, at times, but think with me here for a moment. Imagine how these words would have sounded to these first century Jewish believers. The people who were thinking about calling it quits. I mean, they've got to be thinking that this is either absolute heresy or this is unquestionably the best news that I've ever heard. He's the author of the story, which means he knows the whole story. He knows what's going to happen to you. He's the author of your story, which some of you might find terribly offensive, by the way. I don't know if it's annoying you as much as it is me, but I'm going to take a moment here. Thank you, Mark. Let me say this again. He knows what's going to happen to you. He's the author of the story. He's in control of your story, which I have a feeling, if you're anything like me, you might find that to be offensive. You, you prefer to live with the idea that you're in control, that I'm in control. But yet deep down, don't we know that that's not really working out so well? And if this Jesus really is who he says he is, and this preacher isn't just smoking crack, you know, before he comes in to to give the sermon, then who else would you want to be the author? Would you want it to be you? You can't do better than Jesus. So do you trust him, or are you looking for something else to satisfy? Are you looking for something better? But you know, being the author isn't where it stops. Uh, this, uh, a couple days after Christmas, Sharon and I took our, our grown sons and their wives, who were here for Christmas. It was awesome. Uh, we took them to see the movie Saving Mr. Banks. Anybody seen it? Uh, you got, and willing to admit to it. Um, I got to admit, our boys were a, a little bit skeptical, a story about Mary Poppins. Um, it was Sharon's favorite movie, so they were picturing the, you know, they were being tortured again as a child <laughs> watching Mary Poppins. Uh, if you're not familiar with the story, Saving Mr. Banks is a, is a fabulous movie. It's the story of the author of Mary Poppins deciding whether she was going to entrust this story to Walt Disney to bring it to life on screen. And it was her big concern, and the movie depicts this, that her big concern was that he would take this her creation, this perfect story, so she thought, and would just ruin it. As a matter of fact, if you read more about her, she, I think, died thinking he ruined it. But I'll leave it for you to see the movie. Um, (laughs) If Jesus were merely the author of the story, we'd have the same concern, wouldn't we? I mean, he wrote a good story, so what? Who's going to make the story come to life? If it's up to me, I'm going to ruin this. How's it going to, who's going to make sure it ends well? And this is the next part, that he's not just the author of the story. Jesus is the director of the story. Jesus is God himself. Look at verse 3. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Do you really think you can do better than that? Jesus is the radiance of of God's glory, the exact imprint of his nature. In John 10, we read that Jesus says that I and the, fa- and the Father are one. He is the clearest, clearest picture 
of God that we can possibly see. If you want to know who God is, look at his son, look at Jesus. This is how we know who God is. And I love this part. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, think about the universe. Think about the stars, the constellations, the, the amazing place that we live. And he upholds this. He keeps it going. He's the director of the story. With a word, Jesus holds them. He keeps the universe from spiraling out of control. Which, by the way, if this is true of Jesus, if it is true that Jesus keeps the whole world knit together, then this isn't someone that you just invite into your life to be your personal assistant. This isn't someone who's your hobby or that maybe you take some time for when you have some free moments. Think about the ancient church hearing these words. Persecution was on the rise. Life was anything but stable in the Roman Empire. And yes, our circumstances may be different here, but according to the latest issue of The Atlantic, I don't know if you saw this, anxiety is the number one mental illness in America. Nearly everyone here worries. We worry a lot. I worry about my kids. I worry about my dad. I worry about money. I worry about my health. There's something about getting older and starting to feel aches and pains that you, you think, okay, is this something, should I go to the doctor over this or is this just normal? I worry about being a good enough pastor, a good enough father. Was I a good enough husband? Do people like me? But where else should I go? What else should I do? Many of us will struggle with worry and anxiety. But let me just say it very clearly. You can't do better than Jesus. Our worry reveals the fact that we don't really believe he's the director of the story. So do you trust him? Or are you still looking for something better? And in the face of such a God who's in control of everything, let me just say it brings two things to mind for me. One is that Jesus really is better. If this is true, if he really is in control of the whole universe, holding everything together, then he really is better. But secondly, is this reality that how could someone like this ever put up with someone like me? And this gets us to the fourth point, that he's not only the story, the author, the director, he's also the hero of the story. Look how this reads. It says, After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Through his death on the cross, we were made, it was made possible for us to enter the story, for this story to become our story. You see, he sat down at the right hand. His work of purification was finished. It's not like he has to keep doing that for you or for me. It's done. It has ended. It is finished. If you follow Jesus, you are pure, righteous, holy, even when you don't feel like it. And this is something that this preacher, the author of Hebrews, is going to come back to over and over again. Only in Jesus is there salvation. 
Only with him is there forgiveness for our rebellion, our selfishness, our greed. Only with, with him is there hope. And just as I would speak to Ben and Sarah, let me just say to each of you this morning, hang in there. It is worth it. We can place our hope in him. He is better. As we enter this new year, let me just be clear that our problems are not fixed by self-improvement. It's not about making the right New Year's resolutions. Even though working to be better is a good thing, that's not going to make us good enough. It's not money or work or family or even a cool church or a great job. Our biggest problem is that we run from God and we pretend he's not there. But the hero of the story keeps running after us. And he's made a way. This makes it really good news, doesn't it? He's not just the director. He's not just the author. He's not just the story. He is the hero of the story who makes a way for each of us. You can't do better than Jesus. Now, for some of you, you might not be convinced. Um, You know, okay, so this guy who comes in, I've never met. He says Jesus is better. Big deal. Well, maybe it takes some time for you. Um, But for all of us, no matter where you find yourself this morning, I think that our response ought to be three things. Let me just cover quickly. We'll spend the next six months sort of fleshing these out. The first is that I think we all need to pay attention and know the competition. For Ben and Sarah, it's running back to their old ways, to this comfortable life, to their family heritage. But what is it for me? What is it for you? What's competing with Jesus? What are we believing subtly or even more directly is better than Jesus? Is it approval? Is it family? Work? Food? Leisure? I mean, these are the kind of things that I run to to tell me that life is worth living. But what about you? Have you ever stopped to take an inventory to write down some things that are competing with Jesus? Money, sex, certain hobby or relationship? The thing is, they're so subtle because they're often good things. It's just that you can't do better than Jesus. And then once you know the competition, let me encourage you in this next thing, and it's to make the comparison. You can actually sort of start with these three categories. I've mentioned them already. Significance, uh, security, and satisfaction. And begin to place the things that you're running to or that you run to that compete with Jesus. Is it something that brings you significance or something that brings you satisfaction, something that brings you security? For example, um, I love uh, food. Uh, It satisfies me. Um, I love my work. It makes me feel significant. Um, This, I worry about money. Uh, Will I have enough when I get to the end of my life? Uh, This is an issue of security. Begin to take inventory and place the things that compete with Jesus in your life, that cause anxiety, that display for you the sense that you are um, not trusting, 
you don't believe he's the director of the story. And then ask yourself, what does Jesus promise that they offer? I mean, Jesus also promises satisfaction, doesn't he? He tells us that he gives us life to the full, even now. Jesus promises security, better than money, better than the strongest army or the best doctors. Jesus holds the whole world in his hands. He's already defeated the worst enemy of all, sin and death. And significance, if you belong to Jesus, the scripture tells us that God is our father. We'll actually read in Hebrews 12 that Jesus is our brother. Think about the significance of this. Make the comparison. And then third, it's rarely, it's fairly simple, but you know the competition, you make the comparison, and you choose the better. Don't you? I mean, that's what we want to do. We want to choose the better. And so as we close this morning, we're going to give you some time to work through that. Um, we all have things that compete with Jesus. We all struggle with this. So you're sitting there thinking, okay, I, I don't know that I, I really want to spend much time thinking about this. Let me just calm you and say this is something for everyone. And Gabe's going to come up and, and lead us through a little time of reflection. Uh, those cards are on your chair. I'll let him explain those. Um, we need to know the competition. It's healthy for us to make the comparison. And then we choose the better. Gabe. On your chair, uh, you'll find a simple card with a simple equation. If you don't have a card or you didn't find one on your chair, then look at a chair near you. (laughs) It looks like this. And what it means is it's a math equation. Cross is greater than blank, meaning Jesus is greater than anything you put into this blank. And if you want a simple way to remember Hebrews, this is it. Right here, over and over again, in every single passage, you're going to find that the, the author of this sermon, the working of the Holy Spirit and the writer, is trying to highlight over and over again, no matter what you put in this blank, Jesus is always better. And so we're going to take two or three minutes. Jenny is going to sing over us as we take a moment to reflect together, individually allow the work of the Holy Spirit in our own lives to really ask honestly of our own hearts, what would we put into that blank right now? What do we need to put into that blank to surrender and remember that Jesus really is better? And then on the flip side, you'll notice this equation's on both sides. I want you to take this, and I want you to put it in a place you'll remember it, and you'll see it on a regular basis, whether it's in your mirror at home, in your dash, in your car, at your desk, at work, wherever it is, to remember, no matter what comes in your life, that day, that week, this year, Jesus is better. You can't do better than Jesus. Okay, and so we're going to take a few minutes to think about this, to pray and ask the Holy Spirit to do his convicting work. This is why God has given us his spirit, to convict us of sin and to point us to Jesus over and over and over again. And we've got a couple questions 
just to help us guide this time. First, I want you to be asking, what's competing with Jesus in my life right now? What's competing with Jesus in my life right now? What's taking the number one spot? The ultimate guidance of your decisions, how you spend your money, where you manage your time. And then secondly, does this thing that's trying to take that spot promise security, significance, or satisfaction? What's it promising that it can fulfill better than Jesus? Security, significance, or satisfaction? So let's just take a couple moments as Jenny sings, be praying and asking God to reveal a work of his word in your own